So when you go abroad and it's not news to anybody, but escaping where you came from and your sense of what is normal, you leave that and you stand alone in the world and you get to see yourself reflected off different people and different cultures and different ways of living. It's like a a sort of speedway to change. Great to see you back from AIEA in Washington, D.C. We had a great uh, episode last week where you spoke to some really four really interesting women with really great stories. I was pleased to hear it. Um, yeah. What was it like? We missed you, missed you at AIEA, but uh, yeah, it was a great conference. And, uh, you know, I was so impressed uh, when I was able to sit down with uh, the two women from Saudi who spoke mm. about doing um mm-hmm. and obviously val and yuri as well but yeah no it was a good conference busy as usual good to see old friends um mm-hmm. so i'm really excited to actually speak to emily i spoke with her at the conference oh briefly. great i got to see her there but i'm really excited to hear her story have you met emily i haven't met emily no um i don't know i'm not as involved in education abroad or study abroad but throughout my career haven't been it's mostly my experiences with international student recruitment and admissions so i know less about the study abroad slash education abroad side of international education so i'm always pleased when we have a guest on who comes from that background because it's something totally new for me still international education just a different section of it yeah exactly you know i've known emily for several years but don't know a whole lot about her so i'm looking forward to learning more about her journey too so let's mm-hmm. get her on welcome back to destiny benders our guest today is emily merson executive director of aifs abroad emily so great to have you thank you for joining us thanks so much for having me i'm excited to be here it's really lovely to meet you emily thank you again for joining us on the podcast Let's go ahead and kick off and get started with our most basic of questions. How did you get to where you are today? What got you into the field of international education? You've had a career now for a number of years in this field. Where did it all start? Where did that motivation come from to become an international educator? Well, I don't know anybody who's um, entered the field who knew that they were going to join. It's one of those kind of secret fields, career fields that people fall into, move into, um, sort of enter a little bit serendipitously. Uh, I'm definitely one of those people, like most people are. And I, I like that about it because it means everybody's story is different because we've all taken different steps, but sometimes very similar decision making moments when we had realizations and then we all joined, you know, a similar kind of field doing different kinds of things. So, I mean, for me, from my childhood, I you can hear my accent. Obviously, I'm not, uh, I'm American now, but I was not born here and I grew up in Australia, but my mother uh, was English and she's from England and grew up in England. And then my dad's Australian, but he um, met my mom in England. They lived there for 12, he lived there for 12 years uh, and he'd lived abroad a lot um, before that. So I grew up in a I guess, an international household in Australia, in Sydney. And um, I was in a in an environment where I guess a global perspective and a global outlook was part of, part of my upbringing. And um, my mum was an educator herself, so they both were really. 
So it was kind of like the global knee education was always present in my life, you know, as a child. And so it was, it's always felt like some, an area that I was confident and familiar with and also important. Like it was a sort of thing that we cared about at home. And so that was, it was always sort of part of the framework of, I think, who, who I was growing up and what I cared about. And I didn't think that this would be what I'd be doing. Like, it's kind of strange to look back on it, like everybody and sort of piece together the steps. But I knew from, I guess, probably 16 that I wanted to be impactful globally somehow. Um, So I was, my dad traveled around the world my whole childhood, did lots of work in Asia and was an academic and a journalist and documentary filmmaker and did some really amazing things, but focused mainly on Asia and environmental things, science and technology, politics, history. He was kind of a Renaissance man, still is. He took me with him to Indonesia on a um, one of his work trips and I was tagging along, my brother and I. And uh, we went to Jakarta and I think it was 1991 and it was nothing like it is now and um, Southeast Asia was super underdeveloped and it was we had this opportunity to meet all these really extraordinary people because he was working in a kind of global development space and having meetings with government officials and Australia at the time had this huge initiative to try and um, collaborate you know strategically on technology and different kinds of areas of development because there was a concept that well if you engage with a country that's at the time very undemocratic and very much a developing country that you would have this like cross-cultural and cross-technology transfer of values. And, you know, it was kind of like an idealistic 1990s viewpoint. I think it worked, but at the time it was still new. And so we didn't know. But um, for me, it was very formative because I got to see people living in poverty and I got to see people living on a dollar a day and living in these little tiny spaces. And I kind of was like, blew me, blew my mind. Like at that point, I just didn't know how people really lived in some of these countries. And so it was like very pivotal for me in terms of framing the sense that I had an obligation to do something that made a difference. And I think from that was sort of the beginning of a whole lot of other decisions that I made. So yeah, let's keep going there, right? So you were in Indonesia, you experienced that. Uh, but I'm assuming as you were preparing to go to college, you weren't thinking, hey, I'm going to go into international education, right? I was very, very lucky. Um, I was unlucky and lucky, I suppose. I was dyslexic um, as a child and it was a big, you know, over challenge to overcome. My mom was an English teacher. My dad was also dyslexic, but um, it was sort of a family thing where I was dyslexic and my brother was super smart at everything. And so, but I got through it. And by the time I finished high school, I'd sort of overcome the major setbacks of being dyslexic, which is pretty t- difficult. But I went to a very excellent, excellent girls' school in Sydney that's really it's the top school in the whole country. And I was very fortunate to be there. Um, and leaving it, I wasn't sure I was going to either go to art school and go to fine arts school or if I was going to go into politics. Um, and so I had a gap year and I worked for six months and saved money worked in lots of cafes, which I hated. Like I get, I get some people like it, but for me, I was just not disposed to being good in that setting. Um, I had a lot of creepy cafe owners tell me I should smile more and, you know, what to wear. And it was like, it was not a good working experience, but it was, it definitely created some, some good stories. Um, But I saved money. And then I traveled through Europe for six months, spent time with my family in the UK and, um, you know, sort of went on a journey of discovery 
the old school, you know, grand tour concept and went to all the places I dreamt about. And I remember I'd always want to go to Italy. It's like a huge, like part of what I wanted to do. I hadn't been there before. I traveled to Europe as a child, but not to Italy. And so I went to Italy and it was like kind of came down from the Alps by car and came into Verona. And it was like the most incredible experience. And it from then it's like Italy is my favorite place in the whole world, will always be. And so it was sort of started off a kind of chain of events that came together, I guess, when I started Global Experiences in Rome in 2001. Um, but I studied international relations, environmental studies, um, undergrad, and then I did an internship back in Indonesia at UNESCO. So I went back to Indonesia about six years after the first time I went there. And it was actually at the time of the, the revolution, which deposed Suharto and it became a democracy um, in 1998. So I was sort of interesting to be back into that, into the country at a different time and to see the progress and challenges it still had. But anyway, lots of different pieces, I guess, came together. But I st still thought like not being very ambitious and everything that I was going to be UN Secretary General, that that was the goal. That was the the position, you know, I wanted to be in the maximum place of influence. And I thought that well, if I were UN Secretary General, then I could really fix all these problems because I could have we could have global governance and we could solve all these challenges. And so that was sort of where I was headed in my mind. And then um, I went to UNSW, University of New South Wales in Sydney, uh, which is where my dad also taught. So he was a professor there. And so I did my undergrad there. And during that time, there were lots and lots of international exchange students who still, you know, the US and global exchange model, which is so fabulous, is the reciprocal relationship between schools, moving students, but, you know, abroad and changing, you know, one for one, really. And so we had in my program all these Swedish students. So a lot of them were coming from Sweden into Australia and there are lots of Americans as well, but the Swedes were the biggest group in my international relations programs. Most of them were studying law and international relations in Sweden at Uppsala University. And they, um, we became friends and they told me about the opportunity to um, go to Uppsala for a master's degree program in peace and conflict studies. So that's um, while I was in Indonesia doing my internship, I applied to go to be on this master's program in Uppsala and got into that program. It was like really amazing opportunity. There was only 10 international students and 10 Swedish students. And it was all paid for once you got in, there was no cost. So it was like a really incredible opportunity. I was the youngest by, I think I was 21 when I started. And we had people of like every possible stripe. We had diplomats, we had people with law degrees, people who are professors and all sorts of other in-between characters. So it was a dynamic place and really interesting year that I spent there. I wish you aimed a little higher. Um. Well, it sounds it sounds crazy, but you know, like I really felt impassioned by the idea that I was going to make a difference, and I was like, "Well, what would make the biggest difference?" And well, that would be that would be good. And also, there's no woman still who's been oh, secretary general right. of the UN. There's still time, Emily. I know. I think about that sometimes, and I think I probably don't have the bandwidth. From the beginning, it was always about making a difference, and and various things happened. I don't know if you want me to go into more detail about like the well, series of events. I would um, be interested in hearing more about Uppsala and your time there. I mean, I think that's really 
youngest by far in your class with mm-hmm. some, what sounds like, you know, really amazing fellow classmates. How did that feel as a 21 year old coming from Australia, halfway across the world um, to be in this really small and I imagine quite intense program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, really, about that. it was amazing. Well, the, the interesting thing about it was that culturally Swedes, the Swedish system is quite hierarchical. So there's a lot of deference made to, um, I guess, the university and the system. Whereas in Australia and US students, there are there are a handful of us, um, not quite the same. There's a sort of more didactic, you know, you have debates, you challenge, you you push the envelope in discussions and and you're not very, I guess, deferential to your teachers in a different way. So I'd come from an environment where in my house and my growing up with my parents, like every dinner table discussion was a debate about what was going on right now in the world. And so for me, going to university and talking about international topics was pretty straightforward. Like it was like my childhood. So then it, in the, the university setting and in Uppsala, it was, it came pretty naturally to me. Like I never really felt I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be at the table. I'm not qualified. I just didn't ever have that particular insecurity. I never had imposter syndrome. I guess that's what I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people on that program did. They felt like, why am I here? I shouldn't be here. I'm not qualified. I never really had that feeling. I don't know why. I just didn't. I knew I should be there. I was totally ready for what they were throwing at me. Um, But it was fascinating because it was during the Kosovo crisis and the sort of beginning of the European fiscal union and so there was so many topics about the role of the hegemon, the role of the US in Europe, the role of different kinds of global cooperation and whether that help would help solve conflicts. We're in that really strange post-World War, sorry, Cold War period where all sorts of things felt like there were new, that possibility, that idea that the future was going to be different from the past and patterns were changing and now I think we can probably look back and think, hmm, that was a snabberation, a 10-year period. But I think that that was, it was a great time to be learning and being in international relations because there was a sense that there was change happening all the time and it was it was pretty exciting. So, yeah, and, the, and also I hadn't had that college experience that lots of students in the US have where you're living on a residential campus and you're all a cohort and you have that feeling of you know, having a college experience and going out and having heaps of fun and making friends and stuff like that. Because in Australia, I lived at home, commuted to the campus. It was huge. You know, I went to classes, met a few people, but basically it was like I was getting my degree as fast as I could so I could leave the country. Um, So that was different, a totally different um, experience. But Uppsala was the best time. It was ridiculously fun. So I would recommend it to anybody. So much fun. Yeah, we danced like five nights a week and it was like there were crazy, crazy parties and amazing music and everybody dressed up all the time and it was pretty fabulous. Sounds like a lot of fun. So I have two questions for you. I don't know how they're related. So it it sounds like your parents were very influential in who you are Mm -hmm. today in terms of the global outlook that you have. Um, I'm curious, how did the Uppsala experience sort of lead you to co-found global experiences? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, were there other people? You know, we talk about Destiny Benders on, on this podcast, right? So obviously yeah. your job, what you do impacting students, we'll get to that in a minute. But I'm assuming people have impacted your life quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, there were obviously 
professors at university that were key. I had a really great undergrad international corporations teacher, um, Dr. Michael Wesley. He was my, he was like the top of like the program when I was finishing my studies undergrad. And then I went back after my Uppsala experience and lived in Australia for a while and started a PhD and he was my supervisor. So he was really fabulous, introduced me to, you know, I guess the academic world of international relations. Um, but then on my on my master's program, I met my husband, who was obviously super influential because it's a reason I live in the US now. We started the at Global Experiences together. Um, he was on his Fulbright in Sweden. So he was one of the US students on my the master's program. And so his life experience, completely different to mine. He was an intern at the White House under Clinton. He had, um, you know, got a Fulbright scholarship, but he'd come from a very different socioeconomic background to me, didn't have academic parents who debated topics at the dinner table. So, you know, we had, I learned so much from him, but from, you know, a lot of people we met there together. And he was like one of those scrappy people who was going to fight for opportunity. Like I kind of like felt like it was part of expectation. It was expectations I would do the things I was doing. For him, he was breaking all the expectations for, you know, his life experience and his family's expectations were not that he would travel abroad ever, that he would study to even get a degree. So it was interesting to have that um, that experience and then eventually brought me we started a PhD in Australia but eventually we we both moved back to the states in 2000 so and then got married in in the US so it's been and then started global experiences in 2001 but part of it was sort of you know like lots of lots of entrepreneurial stories it's the story of solving a problem and having a kind of good pressure to be creative and having to make something happen so I was on a PhD scholarship. I was living in the US. I was trying to write a thesis. It was so hard. Like I was getting nowhere and I really didn't, wasn't really enjoying it. And my husband had got a job um, working in Maryland. You get two weeks vacation a year. Like we were like, God, this is not living, you know? And then we had a, a child and we were just like, this isn't going to work. You know, we've got family in Australia. We want to travel we need to think of a way to do something we love that's more meaningful and it's going to sort of create a life that we want to live. So part of it was what do we know? Who do we know? How do we create something of our own? And it was like the dot-com period where everything that was on a website was being funded and supported and there was a lot of creative energy around young people being entrepreneurial and using the internet as a way of launching random businesses you know it could do anything you wanted right because anybody could build a website anybody could get out there and create new things so it was that sense that there was hope in that creative process and so we thought let's let's try and find a model that would allow us to build a flexible you know internet-based business and so we took all of our collective contacts globally so Stephen had lived in Hong Kong and taught English and traveled through Asia at the same time that I was living in Indonesia. So we'd had similar experiences before meeting in Sweden. So we all, we had contacts around the world. And so he'd reached out to a colleague and, you know, he, we sort of started developing the idea of helping Americans to go abroad, to have non-academic professional or teaching or, or other sorts of experiences. 
So the idea of experiential learning versus classroom learning, um, so not competing in the study abroad space, but really thinking about different ways of Americans going overseas as a kind of, you know, emissary of change, like our little Fulbright kind of concept of, you know, education being a great source of peace and security for, you know, global values that we wanted to influence, I guess. So part of it was necessity. We needed something that was going to work. And part of it was like, we really feel committed to being change agents. And so that's really where the concept of global experiences came from. It went through various iterations to where it became, you know, a global internship company. We started in Rome and we started in Rome because I love Rome. That was pretty much the, and there was opportunities there. So it was just an interesting set of events that started it off. How easy is it to just move to Rome and start a company that, that you know, you love Rome, but how do you just move there and decide we're going to well, set up? I didn't move a- there. I went there. So I just, I'd made all these phone calls to businesses there to see if they wanted to have some English teachers because we were having, we were training English teachers at TEFL courses in different parts of the world. And we opened up, mm. there was one that was opening in Rome. We were putting students or young people in there to, to learn how to teach English. And so I thought, well, surely there's going to be businesses that want English teachers to teach their staff how to speak English. No, nobody wanted that. They definitely didn't. I called all of them and they didn't want any of it. But they started saying, but I really love a marketing intern or could you get me a graphic design intern or a communications intern? Because they wanted Americans who could be fluent in English, but also have a contact and can be commercially minded. So it was just like the beginning of a spark that, because I'd interned abroad and that was pretty unusual at the time. I did it, organized it myself. Um, the university didn't help, you know, it was just personal contacts. So I always felt like, and everybody I met in the US was like, oh, I can't believe you've done that. That's incredible. Nobody here gets to do those. I wish I could do it. And I'm like, it's not that hard. I'll help you. And so it became like, I discovered that there was all these barriers to students doing things in the US. And I thought, well, listen, I'm sure we can provide the support and the framework to unlock these opportunities. And that's really where the model came from. Brilliant. So from global experiences to AIFS, you know, tell us a little bit about that journey. A a long journey. Uh, Yeah. So AIFS is um, a really like, I would describe it as like a blue chip study abroad international education company. It's next year, it's 60th anniversary. It's um, sort of, after CAEE, um, it's one of the first and largest international education companies. Uh, the part that I work on, which is the second of the kind of programmatic elements to be started in 1964, is the college division. They call it the college division because we focus on university programming. Um, but they, we also, AIFS Inc. has a whole range of different educational elements. So they have other divisions. They have a uh, high school program. They have insurance company, Camp America, Au Pair America. We have division in Germany that does outbound German programming. We have one in Australia. We have a whole lot of different um, elements. So it's it's partly AIFS abroad, the study abroad organization, which is probably one of its most visual and well-known um, areas. But then there are, you know, many, many other divisions, which we regard as like sister organizations. So we... Um, we have different ways that we meet, but our our founder, who was a bit of a legend, really not so well known in the US, but an English guy called Sir Cyril Taylor, he was a huge um, educational innovator, really, and a passionate um, international educator. So he 
started AIFS and he was committed to the same kinds of things that I was saying that I cared about um, in terms of like seeing education as a force for good in the world and social change and um, helping to break down barriers and cooperation and things like that. So we've, um, I mean, I was at Global Experiences. We were there, we ran for about 18 years before we had the opportunity to, to be acquired by AIFS. And that happened in 2019 in April. So I was the CEO for about, I guess, about eight years at that point. And that was super incredible to sort of have this responsibility for leading a team and building out the different elements. But, you know, we we really focused on being high quality, not the largest necessarily in international internships, but certainly I think the best. And then, um, you know, I think we had a lot of value alignment with AIFS abroad in terms of their experience in study abroad and it was a really, really great match in 2019 and it's gone very well. I mean, the pandemic was a bit of a curveball, I have to say, like things have completely changed during that period in terms of perhaps what what would have happened without it. But yes, it's been um it's been a really interesting process for me professionally to to lead one organ type of organization much, much smaller, then be asked to lead the other one and then have to mash the two organizations together during a global pandemic was pretty hard, I would say. <laughs> But and I can something. ask you a follow up on that. So yeah. as a founder, a founder CEO huh? of Global Experiences to being yeah. acquired, now working as part of a an executive director, but for larger organization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that. It has its days. I before this acquisition process, I don't think I would have called myself an entrepreneur. It's not the way I sort of defined my identity. I felt like a kind of a I don't know, I guess it was accidental entrepreneur. It turned out I was really good at it, running a business, building a business, being strategic, but it wasn't what I was ever intending to do. I never thought I would be doing that. And I never really described myself in that way. But again, like we often do, you look back in time and you're like, okay, yeah, there were probably those characteristics earlier on in different other settings. 50% of me finds it really hard and 50% of me is so happy in my position because it's about the uh, the ability to exert influence and control that I struggle with the most now because I am in a large organization I do have like we have I don't even know actually how many people are in our division I think because it keeps on changing because we hire people in different countries and so we're like well over 150 maybe 200 people globally and there are lots of people doing different things to help us be successful and it's not just the team that I get to manage every day. And so for me, that's, it's trusting that we're on the right track without necessarily knowing everything all the time. And it's, uh, I'm still grappling with it. It's, I am like both great because people like my entrepreneurialism in a way, but it's hard because for me, I get frustrated. So I, I guess it's a mixed blessing, but would I go back and change anything? Absolutely not best decision. So I'm not reluctant in saying, you know, if I could go back, I would do it differently. No, I'm really pleased with where I am, but it doesn't mean it's always easy, but nothing is. And thinking about your team um, and who work with you every day in AIFS and going back to the theme of the podcast being destiny benders and thinking of study abroad as a destiny bender. So not just any one person, but just the entire act of studying abroad or interning abroad is a destiny bender. 
How do you translate that or utilize that in your work and to your team and your team's work every day with what they're doing to transform so many students' lives who are participating on your programs? Is that something that you and the team are constantly aware of or think about in your everyday decisions of how much influence you are in changing the lives of so many people who are are on your programs? Yeah, I mean, I am yet to meet somebody for whom, who studied abroad or interned abroad, who hasn't said to me six months or six years later that that was the best thing they've ever done. So, I mean, it's almost never happens. So in that way, I feel like it's one of the best things you can do, as in it's got the best guarantee of an outcome. Desirable one, I would say 90% of the time. Sometimes it's a a journey of a really traumatic self-discovery or navigating through challenges abroad that maybe they wouldn't want to repeat, but they've learned from the experience or it helps to define a personality. I, I think young people, this is like kind of always my angle on especially internships, but also I think it applies to other programs, study abroad and short term even, that the because it's the college aged audience, so 18 to 22 age group, the the journey of that period is the journey of self-awareness and and self-discovery. Being a conduit to that process and helping to access and help to guide allows for the maximum impact, I think, in the person's life. So when you go abroad, and it's not news to anybody, but escaping where you came from and your sense of what is normal and also not having those feedback loops where when I'm at home, everybody thinks I'm Y or X or this is the environment in which my identity is being reinforced to me. You leave that and you stand alone in the world and you get to see yourself reflected off different people and different cultures and different ways of living and testing it out in an environment, professional or academic or in a new culture or the new language is it's like a a sort of race speedway to change. You know, it just supercharges that, that process that I think is the reason why it is such a great thing to do. I mean, it's for me, if you're trying to find, which is why when, you know, especially friends who have kids who are finishing high school, who might be unfocused, not really understanding what they want to do. I'm like gap year, like immediately send them away, send them overseas. doesn't really matter what they do necessarily, but get them away from home into a different environment where they have to look at themselves differently. I think for the team, for my team and the way I think about leading a global education team, it's often it's about like work is about process, right? So you're getting the like systems and processes and you've got numbers to hit and you've got to get groups of students in the door. And sometimes when you get into the, those like loops or you're under a lot of pressure, there's a problem with students. The things that I found are the best like reframing opportunities are just getting everybody together. It's harder now with COVID being like everybody's remote, but I used to get everybody up standing or in a circle. Sometimes we'd hold hands, but we'd just go around and say, why am I here? Why do I do this? And there would always be tears and there'd always be this sense of, oh, hang on. Okay. That's why I'm doing this. So it puts it in perspective, you know, the challenge, the conflict, the the parent who's unhappy, you know, it brings it back to why. And for me, my number one like business move is starting with why the why of the whole thing is like it's I didn't come up with it Simon Sinek did 
but it's like my number one recommendation for where do you start when you have a business problem is you start with why, but also that helps with your team as well because it yeah. helps them connect back with the motivation that they have. Yeah. I agree with you 100% in terms of the whole study abroad experience and especially teenagers in today's world should explore. But, you know, wouldn't you agree that study abroad is a privilege that only few can afford? And so what are we going to do? What was AIFS doing? What should yeah. universities be doing? What can we do to afford such experiences for a larger population? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I, um, it's a timely one. I think we're grappling with it. I think it used to be a sense that we there was business as usual. It's like, yeah, of course, there are going to be people who can't do something. That's just the way of the world right? So there is just that gravity issue that you can't solve because some people will never be able to do this. So um, there's like certain amount of that, but we're, I think we're seeing, especially with, with my team and in the last year and a half is really, really creative models for thinking about taking what we just talked about as being like the transformative power of global education, especially, you know, for degree seeking students, the retention rates on people who study abroad is almost 100%. Very few people study abroad and don't graduate. So if you dovetail that back into the one of the biggest challenges with students who are coming from, you know, first-gen backgrounds, diverse backgrounds who may not see themselves reflected in the university system, if you can mash those two together, it's a lot of, like a lot of first-gen programs abroad is something that's happening, you know, around the country. And I think it's a creative and really powerful way of taking a societal and university imperative, which is retention and making sure that there some universities have 25% of their student body are first gen or minority and are struggling to be successful. Get those students abroad quickly and get them to understand the context and themselves and feel that sense of motivation. That's a really cool model. And then, well, who pays for it, right? That's the big question. Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of money in play when you're not talking about global education on an island. When you start to engage the strategic goals of the university, which is retaining tuition and even the state level goals of, you know, providing equity and access to opportunity, then you can start creating experiences that are accessible and affordable. And that's the gateway, really, I think, to unlocking an impact that will be so transformative for for the student themselves that will go on to have its benefits, you know, for the degree, but beyond as well. It's, I'm excited. That's like the, definitely for me, the frontier, I think, in international education is um, seeing it as having a seat at the the top level of, of the strategy at university. Like there's, I think, whereas in the past providers, especially, but just international education in some cases was sidelined as its own little specialist area. But I think if you can put it into that framework where it's part of the university's strategic goals, you know, I mentioned the first, the first gen, first year concept, but I think there's so much more when we think about creating degrees that are global is embedding experiences into academic programming and universities, I think, realizing that that's more of an imperative than ever before because of, I think, the experiences of COVID. I'm always an optimist, though. You know, I see these. You, one, one has to be. One has to be. And that's, you know, I think that's uh, uh, in our DNA as international educators, right? That we're very optimistic. We're very global. Right, well, besides uh, the executive director, or apart from being the executive director or being an international educator, who is Emily Merson? What do you do? I love to travel. I really just, it's part of my like being. 
And the part of the reason I love to do it is just because I'm so interested in the world and places I've been, but also places I haven't been. So I'm always, I always have travel as like a subplot of pretty much everything I do. There's a few places I go where there isn't five reasons to be there. Like there's always more than one reason. Yes, it could be a work trip, but you know, I have, I have two brothers who live in Paris. So I, I see them often, which is great. And uh, so, and then I've got family in England and my son lives in Dublin Island. He's doing his degree um, at Trinity College. He's in his third year of four. So he's an international student there and loves it. So yeah, I, you know, think about travel a lot because I have to literally go around the world just to see my family. I love to do yoga. That's like my, I guess, my sort of happy spiritual place. And it helps me get back to feeling like centered and putting things in perspective when I'm stressed out and stuff like that. So I like to travel for yoga too. Like I like to go to places and do yoga, go to yoga retreats, and especially if it's warm and beautiful, then I'm happy to do that. Girish, we usually finish with our quick fire questions, but I feel like we've kind of hit that now with uh, with Emily telling us who you are. But I have, I do have one last question for you. So you said that Italy is your favorite place to go. Give me three things that you love about Italy. Oh, goodness, three. Hmm. I mean, the history, wow. art, the food, I mean, the obvious things. Um, I don't know. I never am there. I feel like I kind of belong there. Um, it's always just been. I in, So it, where I grew up in Australia, we had, I lived in an area and the school had Italian as a second language. And it was because of all the Italian immigrants that lived in the area of Sydney that I grew up in. So for me, it's always been part of it. My dad used to live in Rome. So he used to he used to pretend to speak Italian. He did at some point speak Italian, but he doesn't speak Italian anymore. Um, but he spoke Italian to us sometimes and cooked Italian food, and it was part of the lore. My dad tells a fantastic story, so the the stories are unreal. So I guess it's just part of always felt who who I was. Yeah. You're so I mean, it's just starting to sound more and more like actually we do need your father. Yeah, <laughs> it's decided. So yeah, I do. I do have a quick fire question. Um, so just years ago, when I first met Emily, we met at a NAFSA reception, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was how else introduced- do you meet anyone in this world? That's true. That is very true. Like you and I at a coffee that's shop. That's where we met at NAFSA. <laughs> So uh, I don't know if you remember this, Emily, you you asked me what I do. And I said, I'm looking for an internship. And I applied, I think, for an internship with you. You know, I haven't heard anything about that. What's going on? Oh, well, Emily, this was brilliant. Thank you so much for taking time to spend with yeah, us. Really, It was really fun. Hopefully yeah. it was. And I hope it kind of helped you go down memory lane a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's always good to reflect. And I think you do see those patterns when you look backwards that you can't see looking forward. You've been listening to Destiny Benders. Join us next week when we speak with Daniel Obst, the president and CEO at AFS Intercultural Programs.